Hey, Dunker Punks, here's a question for you. What are you hopeful for? I'll let you think on that question while we hear some Dunker Punks music from Jacob Krauss. I don't want to be rich, don't want to be popular, don't want to be selfish, no. I don't want to be a goat, don't want to be ignorant, don't want to be blindfolded, I just want to be countercultural. be violent, don't want to have a vendetta, don't want to be vengeful, no. I don't want to be a soldier, don't want to be militaristic, don't want to help that cycle, I just want to be a countercultural pacifist. I don't want to be a racist, don't want to be a capitalist, don't want to be sexist, no. I don't want to pass judgment, don't want to hold grudges, don't want to be hateful, I just want to be a countercultural, pacifistic, unconditional lover. I don't want to shop at Walmart, don't want to grow Monsanto, don't want to drink Coca-Cola, no. I don't want to burn petrol, don't want to eat perfect fruit, don't want to feel guilty, I just want to be a countercultural, pacifistic, unconditionally loving organic gardener. I want to be authentic, I want to be radical, I want to be optimistic, honest, I want to be humble, I want to be progressive, I want to be open, I'm inspiration, I want to be like John Wesley, or Sarah Major, or Anna Mao, I want to be like Martin Luther, or Martin Luther King Jr., like Santa Claus, Johnny Appleseed, Dirk Dillim, or Gandhi, Alexander Mack, John Klein, George Fox, or Jesus Christ, but mostly, I just want to be me. Thank you so much for tuning in for another episode of the Dunker Punks podcast. My name is Emmett Eldred and I'm one of your hosts. Earlier, I asked you to think about what you're hopeful for. It might seem like an easy question. After all, we all have things we hope happen. Positive things in our personal and professional lives, good things for our family, and hey, If we have the time and energy left over after hoping for all of that, maybe we'll even throw in some hopes for our community and for the people around us. But looking around, it's easy to see that hope is a scarce resource. Things seem hopeless. Our politics are more toxic and divisive than many of us remember them ever being before. Questions of inequality, of injustice, of anxiety weigh heavily on our hearts. Our headlines and television screams are dominated by scenes of violence, instability, and insecurity. We feel hopeless to affect change in our civic life, and tensions in every corner of our existence seem like insurmountable obstacles to unity and to deep, unconditional love for one another. Even here in the Church of the Brethren, our hopes are marred by grim doubts about the future of the Church and the potency of our witness. As it turns out, to risk hope is a countercultural act. That was the theme of this year's Church of the Brethren annual conference, Risk Hope. 
In today's episode, you'll hear stories and reflections from annual conference, especially ruminations on hope and what it means to risk hope. As a special treat, today's episode was recorded by Suzanne Lay. Suzanne is the information minister at Arlington Church of the Brethren. Suzanne has been working and really been the driving force for the Dunker Punks podcast since the very beginning, and she's been producing content and editing audio for all of the wonderful episodes that you've heard in the past. For this episode, she takes a step in front of the mic to conduct interviews and tie them all together. With that, I'll let Suzanne take it away. Enjoy. I'm Suzanne Lay, and I attend Arlington Church of the Brethren. Usually, I'm behind the computer editing, but this episode, I get to report straight from annual conference. So Brethren gather each year to consider and discuss questions of faith and matters of organization under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. We've been coming together in this way for over 250 years, and the other week we joined for our 231st recorded annual conference. Conference business is conducted by delegates from each congregation and district who make up the final authority for the denomination. It's also a time for worship, learning, and fellowship, and includes many other activities to those ends in addition to many other participants who are not delegates. So, it's a decentralized way for the denomination to make decisions that incorporates elements of spiritual retreat as a way to invite the Holy Spirit to inform those decisions. This year, We gathered in Grand Rapids, Michigan, under the theme Risk Hope. Acknowledging the strife and uncertainty of our times, conference called us to focus on the lesson of scripture that troubled times can be when God's blessing is most evident in the midst of God's people. We are not to fear the instability of our time, for our hope rests in the rock of our salvation. Carol Shepard was elected by the delegate body two years ago to be this year's conference leader, or moderator as we call it. Among other duties, including leading the business, the moderator selects the theme. Continuing in her description of it, she says we are to be bold, bold to turn aside from our despair, to step out in faith, to claim the promises that are ours in Christ Jesus, and to risk hope for the life and vitality of the gospel. Carol opened the conference with a worship message lifting up a boiling down of the Ten Commandments, that we are to worship God alone and take care of each other. As reported in the conference wrap-up, she preached on Jeremiah 32, verses 1-15, through 15, the story of the prophet purchasing land at a moment when an invading army was poised to destroy what was left of Jerusalem. She characterized Jeremiah's prophetic, hopeful act as one of the most audacious and outrageous stories in all of scripture, and called the church to follow his example, asking, can we let go of all that stands between us and the unbridled love of God? Each worship expanded on the theme through to the last with a message asserting that we are blessed to be a blessing. Matthew Fike surveyed the breadth of the Bible, summarizing that it is the story of God seeking relationship. He points to Abram's call as the call, leading up to the promise delivered through Jesus. Because Jesus risked his life, God's hope for a relationship is available. And astoundingly, the rock of our salvation said that those who believe will do even greater works. The message concluded that the risk is far greater to not step out and be a blessing. 
And the prayers of God's people are the rhythm and heartbeat of hope, giving us the courage to act. In between these messages, conference was full of courage-building prayers of all sorts, including wise elders adding prayers at the business microphones, and the fellowship of conscientious participants gathering formally in special insight and meal sessions, and informally as we walked to and from and entered and left the scheduled events. A place I was drawn was the exhibit hall, the standard perusal spot at most conferences where displays educate folks about particular projects and programming of interest. Here is where I found some prayers in action in the way that Rabbi Heschel beautifully described marching for civil rights with Dr. King as praying with his feet. With the conference theme calling me to a Dunker Punks podcast report, I walked the exhibit hall looking to learn about the projects working in the most hopeless situations where despair seems the most rational response. I wanted to talk to the people who daily risk hope in the service of bringing God's love to others, despite heartbreaking suffering. I found an inspiring collection of voices working on those great works that Jesus pointed to. These folks are stepping out in faith, and I asked them to share with us how they do it. Most of them work on helping people find sustainable economic solutions. The teach a man to fish projects, if you will. And they include... My name is Rachel Brink and I work with Foods Resource Bank. My name is Tracy Murray and the organization that I started is called Recyclocraft. My name is Peter Buck. I am in the interfaith and community sales program at Equal Exchange. The other two are organizational partners under Brethren Disaster Ministries, responding to unexpected crises. Okay. We're both with Brethren Disaster Ministries, but I'm with the Children's Disaster Department. Sure. So, gotcha. Brethren Disaster Ministries um, is a ministry of the Church of the Brethren, but we have three kind of program arms. Okay. Um, one is the Global Response, um, another is Children's Disaster Services, and then the third is our Rebuild Program. So I'm, I'm Jen Dorsch, the director of the Rebuild Program. So I'm now a huge fan of each person I interviewed, but the only one I knew beforehand was Kathy Fry Miller at Children's Disaster Services. Because I have a soft spot for children's charities, I got so excited interviewing Kathy that I forgot to ask her her name and organization. Anyways, now that you've met them, let me introduce you to their work. Each person I interviewed is working on some big problems and some could quantify it in numbers. The scope of other problems have more to do with entrenched situational patterns that ensnare people in difficulty. First up, here's Rachel from Foods Resource Bank. So we're working to address world hunger, which is kind of a big problem. It is. Um, so there are currently, um, I think it's according to the UN, there are 785 million hungry people in the world. And about 70% of the world's hungry people live in rural areas, which means that most of them depend on farming as their source of livelihood. Sure. So we work to address hunger by working in food security through agricultural development. Right. Here's Tracy at Recyclocrafts working in Zambia. Zambia is one of the poorest sub-Saharan African countries. They had the highest AIDS orphan population oh. and so um, and the average income is less than a dollar a day. The unemployment rate is over 47%. Um, 10% of the children die at birth, another 10% die before they reach the, sec the sixth grade. Oh, nice. So it's a very, very difficult place to live. Yes. Um, 
Some of my women that I work with used to be rock crushers. And a rock crusher is a vocation that when you have no other option, you do that. You have to pay to get rocks delivered. And then you sit in the hot sun and crush rocks into gravel for cinder blocks and to fill in the holes in the dirt road. It takes about three days to fill a wheelbarrow full of gravel and then you get paid 30 cents. Here's Jen with Brethren Disaster Ministries Rebuild Program. The rebuild side of our program is the, the long-term recovery. So um, long after the news has stopped covering the disaster, or long after, yeah, lots of fundraising has, less money's coming in is when our volunteers go in. So sometimes it's not even um, a year or more after the disaster has hit. And so we have a better idea of kind of what the scope is because it's been longer. Mm -hmm. um, and the way that we are able to go in actually is we partner with local organizations who know a bit about what the world looks like because they've done case management and that's where we get our, our homes and our home, homeowners that we work with are, have already been through a process of case management. And so, so for example, um, we're, our project right now in South Carolina, if you want scope there, we're just doing the um, recovery from the 2015 floodings. It has nothing to do with Hurricane Matthew, um, but in the state, there were over 100,000 people who applied for FEMA money. Wow, okay. And so um, we are there in South Carolina still doing that, um, and then we're about to open up a site in, um, in outside of St. Louis, Missouri. So right now across the state, this is um, they had flooding in 2015 around Christmas time, so it was low attention. People weren't paying attention to the news. Yeah. But there were about 2,400 people that had to, that applied for FEMA money, um, and they did get the disaster declaration from the president as well. Oh, wow. um, and now, 16 months later, they just had flooding again, <laughs> and it's actually higher numbers. So it's um, 3,400 people are now. Um, some of them are the same people that were hit with flooding in 2015 and now 16 months later they're rebuilding again and so um, because we're sort of the long term um, we're able to see some of those numbers um, and we're really by the time we get there so those are the numbers from FEMA some of those people are able to recover on their own but the homeowners that we work with are really the people who um, they um, either are single parents they have children um, one income, low income, um, having either elderly or disabled. So they're the people that would not be able to do it without our help. And so to them, it's definitely a, a huge task and they wouldn't be able to do it without help. Right. Either from the funding side, having the free labor, but also knowing how to do it or being able to pay a contractor. A lot of times there are contractors who people pay to do the job and they take the money and run. Unfortunately, that's a that's very common thing really? when it comes to disaster recovery. So that's kind of the scope of what we are looking at. So in terms of scope for children's disaster services, I would say we, you know, we primarily get called out by like National Red Cross for big disasters mm -hmm. when, you know, everybody's involved and it's in the national news for days and weeks and months or whatever. Um, but we can also serve in small local disasters if needed. So sometimes we'll have a volunteer that alerts us, like in Missouri, the first Missouri flooding this year, or a tornado, we had um, a local volunteer that called and said, I went to a, a meeting at the, the state VOAC, which is Voluntary Organizations Active in Disaster, and they might need childcare. And so then we fund our own teams through, through um, you know, our, our, our funding through Brethren Disaster Ministries to go if it's a local, a small local event. But we can also serve in those big, big disasters. 
and here's Peter with Equal Exchange. Now, you've probably noticed the buzz and hum and music of the exhibit hall in the background. Well, Equal Exchange was offering samples of chocolate, so here you'll also hear a few sweet tooths visiting while we were interviewing. The scope of the problem is that, let me just use Central America as an example, even though Equal Exchange Perfect. is involved all over Central America, all over South America, in several parts of Africa, and, and, and uh, all around the Indian subcontinent. Oh, wow, um, okay. In any case, we buy coffee from a bunch of cooperatives in Central America. There are some places where cooperatives have been quite successful mm -hmm. uh, and have turned into well-run companies that gather a lot of coffee from a lot of farmers and distribute it, sell it, and, and have increased the livelihood of, of some of their farmers. Great. Other cooperatives are fighting against other harder, more, more difficult uh, problems. Other cooperatives have more intransigent problems. Um, in some places, farmers have enough land 15 hectares in coffee, for example, uh -huh. or 10 hectares in coffee to actually make a living. In other places, farmers have one and a half or two hectares in coffee and they can't make a living. In some places, farmers are very productive and re re rejuvenate their trees and are able to keep their trees uh, healthy and fertilized and, and um, replanted and pruned so that they're maximum productivity in other places, farmers are not so successful. Right, right. Um, so it's spotty. But um, uh, and this, this example, this, I'm, I'm thinking in particular of a cooperative in Honduras called Comsa, okay. where farmers are doing really quite well. Um, and, 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 I mean, and then other cooperatives in, in the highlands of Chiapas where the, the, the cooperative is struggling along and being successful, but its members, the, its members don't have enough, each don't each have enough land to really make a substantive substantive living. Yeah. So people are, so this is part, this, this, this situation is part of what I see, the disintegration in Central America. Yeah. Um, and so many people fleeing for economic reasons to come north and try to get jobs here. But also, because of, of, of the um, history of, of the last, since the 80s, between the United States and Central America, mm -hmm. the growth of gangs, starting in Los Angeles and then being exported wholesale back to El Salvador, MS-13, right. Mara Salvatrucha, um, and just land and, you know, hundreds of thousands of unemployed youth being in these gangs. Right. Um, and just completely destabilizing Salvadoran society um, to the point where one cooperative that we're working with um, is being has, is being extorted money uh, from the gangs for protection, right. the, and protection meaning protection from themselves. From them, right. Um, and uh, you know, it's just it's it's chaotic. Yeah. It's 
in some places doing better than others, but in the places where it's really chaotic, it's really dangerous and sad. So it's a very chaotic situation. Um, Honduras is, despite the fact that Comsa, the co-op that we're, de we're dealing with in Honduras, is doing pretty well, and its members are doing pretty well, um, Honduras itself is a, is a mess. I mean, the incredible cramp down, clamp down by the government, the murder of Berta Cáceres, and, and lots of other people yeah. who are fighting for India, fighting against the environmental degradation. Um, so. Uh, I see it as a situation where it requires massive and very wise intervention by Salvadorans, but the Salvadorans have to be resourced, have to have resources, and they don't. Um, there are leaders in El Salvador, there are you know leaders in the cooperative that we buy from who are guys with eighth grade educations but are wiser than many, many other people that I know, mm -hmm. um, that, uh, but they don't have the resources, and we don't have the resources. Uh, and the United States does, but, but people in the United States think we spend, you know, Just way more far too much than, on foreign aid. Right, we spend nothing. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, we spend a tiny amount of foreign aid. And, um, you know, there needs to be a real Marshall Plan yeah. for Central America. And there is a plan, and it's, it's like a multi-billion dollar plan, but it's not clear that it's aimed in the right direction, and that, it's, that it's really going to help. Um, so I see it as chaotic, I see it as there's potential for yeah. growth and, and, and improvement. Mm -hmm. um, there are people who could affected. Mm -hmm. uh, we, speaking of chaos, are you know really serious, difficult problem in the United States with the current administration and with with the attitudes in in this country about about immigration, about foreign aid, about you know it's just it's a very it's it, uh, not optimistic that that the United States is going to do the right thing over the course of the next 15 or 20 years. And I don't see where the resources are going to come from for Central America in general to really stabilize and build prosperity for its citizens. And that's the area where I do the most, where I am the most involved. I'm also on the board of directors of a group called Christians for Peace in El Salvador, which has okay. been working in, uh, in El Salvador for since the mid, since before Equal Exchange was founded, actually. Um, so my short answer is, I see lots of potential, but I'm not optimistic that the political alignment is going to be there. Right. <laughs> How can we even hope to help with such problems? These folks are. So I asked what they hope for. Each person shared their mission and vision. Some offered their organization's perspectives, others shared more personally. Starting again with Rachel at Foods Resource Bank. So our mission statement is, as a Christian response to world hunger, FRB links the grassroots energy and commitment of the U.S. agricultural community, the capability and desire of smallholder farmers in developing countries to grow lasting solutions to hunger. 
So basically, that means we're working through communities and with farmers in the United States to help communities and farmers overseas help themselves. And here's Tracy at Recyclocrafts. I started Recyclocrafts when I lived in Zambia. I lived there for four and a half years. And I, our mission statement says making an educational, economic, and eternal difference in the lives of women, men, and youth in Zambia. Um, I started it for my pastor and his wife. They're nationals, and they arrived in, the, in Lusaka, the capital city where I minister, the week before we did, and, and they didn't know we were coming, and we didn't know they were there. And he was working as a full-time pastor, making $250 a month, and she was, making, she was working as a full-time nurse midwife, making $170 a month. And I was sure I was gonna do children's ministry. I'm a pediatric occupational therapist, homeschooled my eight kids for 25 years. I love to see kids learn. And so I was sure I was gonna do children's ministry when somebody said, hey, you could do this. You could start a handbag project like this other woman. And I was like, no, I don't wanna do that. <laughs> and, You're here for the kids. <laughs> I, and that's right. And anytime you tell God, no, you don't wanna do something, God says, I have another idea. So when I saw the struggles that my pastor and his wife had, um, they were trying to get their children through college. They, they were both college educated themselves. You try to get your, your children as far as you can academically. Um, because they're going to be your social security in your old age. Right. And so when I saw the struggles they were having, I went to them and said, would this help you if I started this? And they said, absolutely. Here's Peter with Eagle Exchange. I'll just read you our mission statement. Okay, perfect. Is to build long-term trade partnerships that are economically just and environmentally sound to foster mutually beneficial relationships between farmers and consumers, and to demonstrate, through our success, the contribution of worker cooperatives and fair trade to a more equitable, democratic, and sustainable world. Okay. That's going to need some updating because we are um, reconsidering the term fair trade as, as a description of what we do. Um, and we, we think that in addition to everything we said in the mission statement, there is more that we need to do uh, in terms that, that fair trade or that whatever we're calling it, trade alone isn't enough. That there have to be, we have to look at ways to get more resources to our partners in Central. And, and, and the, the most recent work we've been doing is working with is bringing together some of our closest partners, Guatemala, one in Guatemala, one in um, uh, Peru, and one in Mexico, uh, to, to talk about sort of their wish list for the future and see how we can work together to, to try to bring those things about, to, to, to make improvements that are outside of the trade, strictly trade relationship. So, so our mission and vision is is um, a more equitable, democratic, and sustainable world. Right. And uh, I would, I would, I always add the word prosperous, but I don't think I mean everybody gets rich. I think I mean we have the, the we all have the, the means to a livelihood in which we have free will and and are able to make a contribution to 
society and live comfortably. Yeah. I don't think we're, no, I don't think we're all going to become middle class Americans. Right. Nor should we. Right. <laughs> At Children's Disaster Services, we talk about we nurture children, we equip volunteers, and we support families and communities um, in times of disaster. So that's really um, that's really like kind of our our statement of, of what we what we do in terms of service. In terms of my own personal like sort of mission and call to this work, I think it's. It's just, I've always worked in the field of early childhood, um, and my degree and everything was in that field, and so this just seemed like a, a really good fit for my my desire to do like service to the most vulnerable people in humanity, and, and then, um, you know, just hearing about this wonderful organization. So I was actually a volunteer with Children's Disaster Services for um, probably 20 years before I took the job, so awesome. yeah, I've been out all Disasters. Yeah, you volunteers. Oh, that's great. And um, just the sort of the mission statement of Brethren Disaster Ministries in general is um, sort of in, inspired by the work of Jesus to rebuild rebuild homes, um, work with children, and respond globally, um, and just to help communities and support communities who have just experienced disasters. And we do that through volunteers. Um, through support from funders um, and also through our partners on the ground. Um, and I, I also um, had volunteered on about, for many years, um, different sites for rebuild as well. Mm -hmm. um, my parents are project leaders, so it, to me, serving oh, with BDM or with other organizations, uh, it, it's it, obviously it's good work um, and it's supporting homeowners and communities, but it, to me it's also hugely impactful for the volunteers that are going out and their like their spiritual journey and and forming what they're going to do in the world and and just seeing getting to meet other people and who are in a different walk of life than you are um, I think it's really important for spiritual formation and just discipleship and things like that so that's kind of my my own personal side of it that was Kathy with Children's Disaster Services to start and Jen with Rebuild wrapped up with Brethren Disaster Ministries organizational mission and her own perspective on the hopes for their good work. I then asked each person how they hold these high hopes in the face of such cruel conditions where it seems the chances are low that these problems can be solved. Where do they find the faith to get up every day and set to work? So not so much how they are tackling these problems as most are pretty multifaceted efforts, but the why of it, the heart of it. We'll start with Rachel again at Foods Resource Bank. Well, our, our work, while we serve people of every religion and background, um, I am motivated, and I think our whole organization is motivated by the, the need, God's calling to help people who, who are in not the same situations that we're in. So um, we feel like called, called by God to, to help the, the poor people of the world. So our tagline is rooted in community, grounded in faith. And I really think that our organization is grounded in faith and that motivates what we do every day. Unfortunately, I lost a little bit of my audio with Tracy at Recyclo Crafts, but she had two beautiful stories to tell. One about a mom who fell victim to the high death rate through childbirth, but that had been baptized before she died. And one about the youngest of eight or so who had little hope for educational or economic opportunity. But she started with the project, 
saved up to buy a mixer, and then sold traditional baked goods and was able to fund her education. Now, that woman's becoming a nurse. So for Tracy, it's the impact she sees that gives her the faith to keep going. And now Peter from Equal Exchange with a personal take and encouragement that he finds in scripture. I get up and pray, not every morning, but most mornings, and, and read, I read the, the, uh, the, re- the readings. Do you use the uh, common lectionary? Yes. Yeah, yes. okay. Um, I but get like up. as church on a week, weekly basis? Well, yeah, there but the, it's, there are daily readings. Okay. Yeah, okay. and I, 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 uh, I try to keep up with those oh, that's readings. Cool. And, yeah. um, and I'm involved in my church. Uh, we have a coffee hour in my church. Right? I'm Catholic, so I call it the Sacrament of Coffee and Donuts. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, my church, my parish, uh, is, a, is, a, is a big uh, prop to me. My, my team, which is a more or less secular Jew, but very much into the Jewish tradition. She doesn't, she's our boss, okay. she doesn't really, she's not, you know, what you would call a profound believer, but she really appreciates her tradition and her, philo- the, the, the philosophy of her, of her, of her denomination. Um, a young uh, man who grew up non-denominational evangelical and a, another woman who's Unitarian and me, who's sort of a wow. progressive you know, left-wing Catholic. Yeah. Although I was, I was baptized Presbyterian, and I, I converted later. Um, we are constantly talking and quoting the Bible and, and quoting the prophets and and, and talking about um, you know it, our little room, our little department of four people is uh, is a prop, is a is a is a help to each other. We we we. Um, we think of ourselves, and I—I've been finding more and more in the Bible uh, um, passages that are that are very meaningful to me. Um, social justice passages, you know, and not just proof texting, mm-hmm. not just going and finding three little lines mm-hmm. that seem to justify my position, but finding passages and stories and 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 and, and things that are that are. That are really um, um, inspiring and instructing yeah. us. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorites is um, I was in visiting years ago. I was visiting a, a village in uh, Mexico, um, in the highlands of Mexico, in Mayan. It's a Mayan village. The bishop of the area, Samuel Ruiz very appreciative of Mayan traditions, more so than the rest of the church wanted him to be, I think. He was accused of syncretism a couple of times. I see. Um, and really had, had an effect, and also that there had been a real struggle to allow villages to form cooperatives and, and, and uh, get land and stuff like that. He'd mm-hmm. been in the center of that. Um, so we were at a village having a liturgy. Um, you know, it's technically Catholic, I guess. It was led by a deacon, but it involved fireworks, which we don't use much oh. in our church. And, uh, and you shouldn't see, we use, you know, you talk about smells and bells, like yeah. incense and bells, not fireworks. Um, uh, and, and, and prayer that was sounded very, very cacophonous. And, uh, 
but there was a reading that night, um, and it was from Amos, Amos 8, 4 through 8. And uh, I can pull up Bible Gateway and find it if you want, but um, basically it's Amos um, denouncing, or God through Amos denouncing the uh, unscrupulous grain merchants who cheat the farmers. And when the farmers bring their, bring their, um, their bushels of, uh, of wheat or whatever it is to sell, then the grain merchant has his, 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 his baskets adjusted. He says it's a bushel, but it's not really. Or his, his scale is adjusted. He says it's 10 pounds, but it's really only nine. You know, that kind of thing. And it, it, this is described in, the, the, in biblical language. And, uh, and how uh, God is going to wash these people away like the Nile and flood. And um, it's, I had never heard this passage before. Yeah. And it, was, it was a great passage, and it was, you know, um, uh, affected me. And there's a similar passage in Micah right after the passage where Micah says, do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly to the Lord. And right. the rest of that passage is, is very similar to Amos, okay. saying, don't cheat the farmers. But there's so much more, and just exploring the Bible is a huge, a huge help to me. And finally, here's Kathy with Children's Disaster Services, followed by Jen with Rebuild. For me, I think uh, we talk a lot about self-care with our volunteers and with our leadership. And so I try to model that as well. So I, every time I do a training or every time I do a leadership training, we come to the part of the training where we ask people to think about what it is that makes you feel grounded and what, what yeah, gives you that strength to, to go on and, and to center yourself and calm yourself down and stuff. So, you know, for me, um, prayer is really important. Music, just um, whether it's something I can do openly or just within myself, just thinking of, of those songs that like inspire me. Um, uh, certainly community, we always go out in community, so that, that can be a really grounding thing, just find that person you know, that you can get a hug from or give a hug to. And, and then for us, it's, you know, we have the children, I mean, they're <laughs> just so, it's just so inspiring to just hear the laughter of, of a child that maybe came in and was really shy and then all of a sudden they start to blossom right there in front of your eyes, or a parent comes back and says, Oh, they haven't been laughing like this ever since, you know, the tornado hit our town. And it's just, um, so that in itself is really inspiring, but also grounding. You know, it's like, yes, For this sure. is why I do what I do. Right. <laughs> um, I would say, especially working with BDM, um, the, that I guess the faith that I see, or and, and even connecting it with the Risking Hope side is, there is risk in it for our volunteers. They're traveling, they're going to places they've never gone to, they're learning new skills and things, um, and, and doing construction that they've never done before. But even for, for the homeowners, it's also a risk. They have already been um, through a disaster. Maybe they're not living at home, and um, they're welcoming strangers into their house, different strangers every week, to work on their house. That's so, a good point. I so, that. Um, and, and we just. Um, the, the partners that we have on the ground are really local people that have live in that community and are just trying to do go over and above anything they can do to help 
those who have been affected. And so it's just inspiring. I mean, and it definitely encourages, like I see hope in all of that. Um, so definitely with the volunteers and then even with those who support our programs, um, they're risking financially so that all of this can happen. So maybe they can't go out on rebuild site or they can't drop of the hat, go and serve after a disaster with CDS, um, but they are enabling those programs to support communities but with those funds as well. Um, so yeah, I would say that those are, that, that keeps, and yeah, it just keeps the faith there, knowing that people are, are still wanting to do this and are still wanting to serve others, and especially in a safe space where anybody can come and serve and, and do this work, and it doesn't matter what your political affiliation, what your personal preferences are and things, but you can work alongside each other um, and, and risk there as well. Uh, and so that, that, that's definitely what I would say. So there you have it. Risking connection is key. Connecting with God through prayer, scripture, community, in celebration of impact scene, all of which I know you dunker punks strive for. These collected voices, each working against impossible hardship, Speak to God as the only source of redemption in a world where suffering can leave us hopeless. I hear in their answers an inspiring message of saving grace and will rely on a sermon by Nadia Bowles-Weber to articulate the hidden gift. Just as the people I interview reveal, Bowles-Weber explains that hope is not something we muster up. Rather, it's something we are surprised with. A gift that frees us from the burden of naive optimism and all that is left after all else fails us. It's a defiant hope, an Easter hope, that sees in darkness the beauty and reconciliation that is only possible from something other than our own limitations. Sure, these people are putting themselves to work, but they're not relying on their power alone. They have the preposterous but real and honest belief that God, who himself suffered, is the source of energy to love each other back to life. Bowles-Weber concludes there is no hell from which resurrection is impossible. So, Dunkerpunks, I bring you a few risk-takers that I found at conference in hopes that their stories will inspire your own and that together we can risk the hope to see each other through to God's revolutionary reality. Let us pray for each other's courage to reach the unbridled love of God. And when facing our challenges, may the suffering remind us that God's story is not finished. You know, it's not just a question of what we're hopeful for. We also have to ask ourselves, what gives us hope? What fills us with a hope that is both unexpected and totally transformative? More simply, where do we see God? Where do we see God's light? Who do we see carrying that light? How are they carrying it? And how can we get involved? Like we just heard, hope isn't something we muster up by ourselves. It is a divine emotion, a stirring within us, a provocative gift hoisted upon our heavy hearts, a defiant glimpse of God's vision for our world. Our question isn't just what we're hopeful for, but what will we risk to embody that hope for the future? How will we act upon this great gift we call hope? That's the challenge I leave with you. 
Think, pray, and act on these questions. What gives you hope? What are you hopeful for? And what will you do to risk hope? Thank you so much for listening to the Dunker Punks podcast. You can find us online at arlingtoncob.org or on social media at dunkerpunkspod. If you want to support what we're doing, reach out to us at dpp at arlingtoncob.org. The Dunker Punks podcast is a collection of people risking hope by telling stories of God working in the world today and the stories of people risking hope by working with God. I'm your host, Emmett Eldred, and our other host is Pastor Nancy Fitzgerald from the Arlington Church of the Brethren. Our music is by Jacob Krause. Tune in for our next episode two weeks from now when we'll be hearing from Dana Cassell. Until then, Dunker Punks, find hope, have hope, and risk hope. Thank you for listening. Take a listen for the Dunker Punks. Oh, oh for the Dunker Punks. Yeah. yeah that's cool. That's a cool group. What's up, Dunker Punks? What does it even mean to be a Dunker Punk? What does it mean to live out Jesus' calling in a changing world? Dunker Punks. Make their communities look a little bit more like the kingdom of heaven. Dunker Punks. Figure out a way to hold on to the hope that another way is possible. Dunker Punks. Love everyone, even our enemies. Dunker Punks. Non-violent, non-conformist Anabaptists sharing audio accounts of following Jesus to God's revolutionary reality. We seek truth to spread love and stand up for the marginalized. I'm your host, Pastor Nancy Fitzgerald. Hey, this is Emmett Eldred, your new co-host. Hello, my name is Kevin Schatz. Dana Cassell here. Hey, this is Sarah Olaminick. I'm Dylan. Hello, I'm Nathan Hustler. My name is Laura Weimer. Hello, I'm Amy Gehring. I'm Jonathan Stauffer. Hello, Dunker Punks. I am Jenna Walmer. I'm Suzanne. Hi, Ashley Haldeman. Josh Brockaway. Hi, friends. Elizabeth Ullery Swenson here. My name is Noemi Flores. Hello, my name is Jacob Krause, and you're listening to Dunker Punk's podcast. With support from Arlington Church of the Brethren. On Earth Peace. Office of Public Witness. Dunker Punk's. Committed to Jesus' radical anti-empire love in our own world. Disciples of Christ putting the words of Jesus, especially the words that we read in the Sermon on the Mount, into action every day. Hit it, Jacob! Countercultural, pacifistic, unconditionally loving, organic gardener. Like what you hear? Consider making a donation at arlingtoncob.org slash dpptonor. We were talking about Dunker Punks. They were, they uh-huh. were very excited about Dunker Punks. Dunker Punks for life. See you next time.